All right, good evening, everyone. Greetings to each of you in the name of Jesus. Thank you for coming out to church on Sunday night. Thank you for coming this last evening. It's kind of too bad uh, we can't, I, uh, it breaks my heart we can't continue on. <laughs> but uh, yes, it has been a real blessing to be here. And you have, you know, you all uh, invited me to come down here and preach for a week. And I was supposed to come down here and minister to you. And what actually turns out is that you all ministered to me. So thank you. You have been a real blessing. And, uh, you know, I, I think I might have referred to this before, but, you know, a, a week like this is a, a little slice of, of heaven on earth. where We can every day, we can just come together in the evening, look at the, the word of God, fellowship together in the things of the Lord, encourage each other, and bless one another in our walk with God. So it has truly been a blessing. We got into many of your homes. Thank you for your hospitality and all the sharing that you did with us. And we are very grateful for that. And uh, we will feed on this blessing for, for weeks to come. <laughs> so I hope you do the same. Well, there are only, there were only, I think it was eight sermons I got to preach here. I only got to preach eight times. And so I'm going to tell you what you could have heard that you didn't. Because I, I wanted to preach to you about creating me a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. I wanted to preach that. But I didn't have enough chances. Should have had two sermons every night. Watch the clock on that one. Um, I wanted to preach to you about being ashamed of Jesus. Ashamed of Jesus. You know, if you're ashamed of Jesus, Jesus says, I'm going to be ashamed of you. And do we ever have a little bit of shame that we're associated with Jesus? I hope not. I wanted to preach about being a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a peculiar people. I didn't get a chance to do that one either. I wanted to preach about being dead to sin and alive to God. I didn't get a chance to do that either. But we will preach a sermon tonight. Our brother, I, had, I met a brother earlier this evening. He says, so are you all ready for the grand finale? And you know what? I said, well, maybe it's going to be the big deflator. Maybe you're all going to go home this evening deflated instead of encouraged and blessed. But I doubt it. I don't think you will. I think you'll be encouraged and blessed by this message tonight. We're going to look at just a little, I think it is, three words. We're going to preach a sermon tonight on three words. And you're going to say, well, that is going to be a short sermon. Well, sorry. <laughs> Because the three words that we're going to talk about tonight have huge meaning. Okay? And those are three words that Jesus said from the cross. From the cross, as Jesus was expiring, he said three words that had enormous implications of what they mean and how powerful three words can be. And probably by the time I'm done here this evening, I will not have explained to you everything that these three words mean. But we're going to try to get through at least as much as I can understand. All right. And that is the three words Jesus said as he was giving up his life. He said, it is finished. Okay. 
Jesus said, it is finished. And what did he mean when he said, it is finished? Well, we're going to look at a number of things here tonight. I know we talked about John 10 this morning. So this will be a little bit of a continuity and a little bit continuation from this morning, perhaps. But you can turn in your Bible to John chapter 10. And we're going to see what Jesus said about the giving of his life. This message has several points. The first of them is physical life is ended. Okay, point number one tonight, physical life is ended. Um, it is apparent from the writing in John 19 that when Jesus said it is finished, he gave up the ghost and his physical body died. Right? There's not much disputing that. Um, even people who are trained in the medical profession, uh, they analyze the words and they analyze the circumstances and they, they look at what happened after this and they said there is no question and there is no doubt that Jesus' body indeed was dead. Now there's people that contradict that. In fact, uh, there are different religions that would say that uh, they use, a, they call it the swoon theory and things like that, where Jesus, he sort of fainted, but he wasn't really dead. They took him down off the cross. They put him into a, a tomb, but actually he wasn't really dead. And he uh, somehow in there, he got himself back together and, and revived a little bit. Came out of the grave. Well, that's kind of ridiculous because they poked his side with a, with a spear and out came water and blood. There is no chance. There's no chance that he was alive uh, after a description of those types of, of events. But let's read here. John chapter 10, verses 14 to 18. Jesus, again, we talked about this this morning. But he says, I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known of mine. As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father. Now, from here on, I want you to count how many times it says that I lay down my life. All right, count it. He says, and I lay down my life for the sheep and other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring and they shall hear my voice and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Therefore, doth my father love me because I lay down my life that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. And so when we think about the death of Jesus Christ, it looks like he was executed. Would you agree with me tonight that that is not really the case? Because Jesus was the Son of God. He, he said, I have power to lay down my life, I have power to take it again. In other words, I am in control of my own death. Now, that is not true of you and I. We are not in control of our own death. Um, the only way that is possible is if a person is actually taking their own life, which is not advisable by any means. But Jesus was in control. And so he was able to say, it is finished, and he was able to give up the ghost because he was in control of his own death. I lay down my life. No man takes it from me, he says. I lay it down of myself. It was voluntary. It was of his own volition. It was something he chose to do. And he 
did for you and for me. He voluntarily laid down his life. And as we talked about this morning, he said, the sheep lays down or gives, the shepherd gives his life for the sheep. And that is extravagant love and grace and kindness. And so when he said it is finished, he was showing that he was in control um, and that he laid down his life for the sheep. Second point tonight is that the old covenant is done. The old covenant is done. Now the, uh, the law was rife with prohibitions, all right? There were many things that you were not allowed to do. In fact, the, most of the Ten Commandments, we normally think of the Ten Commandments, and they are like, thou shalt not. All right? And so the, the law said, these are a number of things here, a bunch of things you may not, you're not to do those things. And there were a lot of other things that you're not to do in the law. And some of it's very, very intricate details of, of things that you are not allowed to do. And then there was other things that you were commanded to do. But the law, the, the old covenant being done, um, and, and some people, it is sad, it is sad, but many people measure their Christian life with all the things that they don't do. You ever meet anybody like that? It's all about what I don't do. I don't do this. I don't do that. I don't do the other thing. Look, I'm a goody-goody. I don't do all these bad things that other people do. I'm like, look at me. I'm, I'm pretty good. Well, i tell you what. The Christian life is a whole lot more than a bunch of things that you don't do. The Christian life is power. The Christian life is peace. The Christian life is joy. The Christian life is obedience to God. The Christian life is positive. It's a yay and amen kind of a, a situation, a relationship with God. It's not just a bunch of things that I'm not allowed to do. It's a whole bunch of things that I get to do. All right? And so the Christian life is extremely positive. And anybody who looks at it any other way isn't looking at it for what it is. We get to walk with God. Every day, I get to fellowship with God's people regularly. I get to live in peace with the people in my life because Jesus Christ has made such a difference in my heart that I don't have to be in conflict with them. That is absolutely beautiful and it is priceless. So there's so many things that we get to enjoy and appreciate and have in our relationship with God and it is so positive. If you were to line up all the different ways a person can live. Now, you can't do that, I know. Because there's a, probably, a, you know, as many people as there are in the world, that's, that's how many different ways there are to live. Seven and a half billion, probably. But if you would line them all up and say, well, you could be a sinner man, living a life of sin. You could be a drunkard. You could smoke pot. You can live in immorality. You can live that way. You could live it as a, as a Muslim and you could do all your prayers. You could go to Mecca. You could do all the pilgrimages. You could be a Hindu and you could fear thousands of gods. You could be a Buddhist and you could sit there meditating and trying to get close to God or trying to figure things out or whatever they do. And you know what? If you line them all up, you would say living for Jesus is better than anything else out there. And so praise God tonight that we have the opportunity to know the Lord Jesus and we can have the gospel of Jesus affecting our heart, making us a new creature, giving us a new life, filling us with his Holy Spirit. I want to tell you tonight at Hepsa of a Mennonite Church in Georgia, I want to tell you that serving Jesus is where it's at. 
And unfortunately, sometimes we walk around acting like it's not. I heard a man say this week, tell, tell your face. You remember that? You said, tell your face. Well, I like to preach in such a way that my face says it, okay? And, I, and, and the face says that serving Jesus is where it's at, okay? And that's where it's at. So if you have the Lord Jesus in your heart and in your life and you're filled with his Holy Spirit, there's no better way to live. Absolutely none. And so rejoice and be excited and be happy about it. The Lord has been very good. I'm glad I don't have to go back to that old covenant. That old covenant where, where they had to bring their sheep and their lambs and their goats and their, their muskox, or no, that muskox, wrong word, I'm sorry, their oxen, and they had to sacrifice them. They had to take the blood. They had to sprinkle it here and there. Oh, what a lot of work. And we were talking to somebody this week. I don't know who it was, but we we're talking about all those sacrifices and all the work involved in making those sacrifices, all the blood they had to shed. It was just a messy, messy situation. We don't have to live that way. We are free from the law. We are in the new covenant, which we'll talk about in a few moments. But I invite you to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. Verses 10 to 13. And uh, we're going to look at this scripture again. But we just want to highlight a little bit in this, this passage here right now. Hebrews, Hebrews 8, 10 to 13. For this is the covenant that I will make of the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts. And I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities, will I remember no more. In that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first covenant old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. And so the Hebrew writer is saying here that the new covenant is coming on the scene and the old covenant, which was the law, is fading away. Okay, now this was at the beginning of the writing or the writing of the New Testament first century church. That which is old is ready to vanish away. And these words are taken directly from Jeremiah 31 at the beginning of the book of John. Here's a beautiful verse, all right? Um, do you ever feel sorry for Moses? If you didn't, you should. Moses had a tough job, first of all. And besides that, how many of you like delivering bad news to people? You like that? You like being a, you know, it's almost like poor Moses, he comes down off the mountain and he tells, okay, now God says thou shalt not, thou shalt not, and now you have to make all these sacrifices, you have all these rituals and all these ceremonies and all these prohibitions and all and, and Moses has to communicate this to the people, and I'm so glad tonight that I don't have to communicate the message Moses had to give, but I can communicate one that's a whole lot more positive, all right? Um, but he, uh, John 1.17 says, For the law was given by Moses. Poor Moses. But then it goes on to say, But grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. What a positive message. Grace and truth. We sang downstairs before we prayed, marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount was poured 
talks about the, the grace of God, the blood of Jesus being poured out for us. And so the grace, Jesus came with tr- grace and truth. And so I would, I would suggest to us tonight that what Christ brought to us was so far superior to what Moses had to bring and deliver. And we can enjoy the grace of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ here this evening. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus clarified in 517, Sermon on the Mount, he said, think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. He did not come to put a big X over it and say this is worthless, forget about it, doesn't count for anything. He didn't do that. Instead, he said, I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. In other words, all the things that the law pointed ahead to, all the things that the prophets pointed ahead to, all came together in the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the subject of the law. He was the subject of the prophets, all pointing ahead to Jesus. Jesus came, he he brought it out in the open, he said, it is fulfilled in me, okay? I'm here, I bring it all together, and now you know why it's there. It's there to point to me, all right? It's fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus brings all the law and the prophets together to a fitting conclusion. He brings about a proper completion and realization of their purpose. He ties up all the loose ends and presents it all in a singular package. This evening, the cessation of the old covenant was powerfully symbolized by one great event, the moment Christ died. You know what that great event was? The old covenant was done when Jesus gave up the ghost, and in that moment, that veil in the temple, from the top to the bottom, shredded in two pieces. What do you think the priest did? I I, I often wonder what it would have been like to be a priest in the temple the moment that veil was shredded in two. What did they do? What did they think? Did they have any clue that maybe this supernatural event had anything to do with what's happening out on the hill of Golgotha? Does this have anything to do with that? Sure, these these men knew that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, and they knew that he had claimed to be the Messiah, the, the one that was promised. They knew that, and yet they totally rejected him, wanted nothing to do with him. In fact, they wanted to get rid of him, which they did, at least in their minds. They didn't get rid of him, actually, because you can't get rid of can't get rid of Jesus. You can't get rid of the Son of God. You can't do it. He's there. He's eternal. What do they think? I don't know. They made up some strange and silly stories about the empty tomb, so they probably made up some strange and silly stories about the temple veil going in two pieces. You can read about it, uh, Matthew 27, 50 and 51. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. And the earth did quake and the rocks rent. So in one shredding moment, the old ended and the new began. It seems it should have gotten the attention of the Jewish leaders. They should have said, okay, guys, look. We've been wrong about this man. We've been wrong. You know what? It would have been so much better if they'd have just said, we were wrong. 
When, when tr clear truth is staring you in the face, it does no good to deny it. It just does no good. Maybe you're here tonight and you, you know the clear truth of the gospel. You know the, tr the truth of Jesus Christ and what he's done and what God is as asking and expecting of you. And yet the truth is staring you in the face and yet you deny it. And you say, no, no, no. Well, you know what? The fact that people deny the truth and refuse the truth and don't believe the truth does not change the truth one bit. The truth is still the truth, no matter anybody believes it or not. And so here was this great supernatural event. Did the fact that the Jews didn't believe it, did that change the fact that it happened? Certainly not. It still happened. And they should have been honest enough to look at it for what it really was. No longer was this veil needed. Jesus' death made it obsolete. And so what does that symbolize to us here tonight? The veil, the veil of the temple being rent in two means that you and I, when we want God, <laughs> we can go right into his presence. And that's beautiful. And that's powerful. And that is a delightful way to live. God is available every moment of every day and of every night. We can come boldly to his throne. Point number three tonight, the new covenant is begun. The old covenant is done, and three, the new covenant is begun. Now, what is this new covenant like? A few moments ago, we read Hebrews chapter 8, and we're going to read it a little bit. We're going to kind of go through this a little bit piecemeal here. But uh, Hebrews 8.10, For this is a covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts. Okay? Now, if I was to ask you tonight, what was the law, the keeping of the law, was it more internal or was it more external? Is that a fair question? Uh, we would say, well, it seems as though it was more external. Okay? Now, I believe God still wanted to have a heart relationship with his people, and yet he gave them laws to live by that were external things. They did external cleansings. They did external sacrifices. It was all done sort of out here, hopefully by faith and in love to God. But God says the day is coming that it's going to be in the mind. And in the heart, I'm going to put their, my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts. So this is indicating an inward transformation, not just an outward compliance. All right. So I don't know what kind of a Christian life you live here tonight. I don't know if your Christian life is the kind that you just kind of put on the outside. I'm telling you tonight, if you only put it on the outside, it isn't worth anything. It's nothing. And there are many people, there are many people that their Christianity is only external. They don't have a transformed heart. They put on the right clothes and they go through the right motions and they sing the right songs. They say the right words, but nothing is going on inside of them. Okay. And I want to tell you, if that is the case with your life tonight, your Christianity is not worth much. Might make you a nice person, might make you a good looking person might make it look like you're a pious person. But if it hasn't touched your heart, if it isn't in your mind and in your heart, it isn't worth anything. And there's a lot of people 
This is tragic. I'm even sad to have to say it. But there's a lot of people that go through life with lots of self-denial. And they do all kinds of good things. But they never surrender their hearts to God. And they don't have an inner transformation. And when they stand before God someday, he's going to say, nice effort, buddy. I'm glad you tried so hard, but it's not enough. You didn't have a transformed heart. You did not surrender your will to Jesus. You did not receive salvation. You did not really repent of your sins and allow me to be Lord and God of your heart and life. And won't it be very sad? Won't it be very, very sad for people who have lived their lives in religion and never had a true heart change and a relationship with Jesus Christ? What a tragedy. There's many that are going to be like that. In fact, we're told in Matthew 7, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have, have we not in your name done many wonderful works? And it's, all, it's as though these people are saying, God, these are, these are the things I did. And God says, depart from me, I never knew you. Sad moment. Sad moment. But it's to be in our hearts. It's an inner reality. And the inner reality, yes, I will hasten to add tonight, the inner reality gives outward evidence, okay? If it's real in here, it's going to show up out here. It's going to change the way you talk. It's going to change the way you think. It's going to change the way you live. It's going to change the way you love, like we talked about a lot this week. It's going to change who you are. It's going to show up on the outside. But it's got to come from in here. It's not just something you paste on the outside. So it's going to be in your heart. It's going to be the new covenant. The new covenant is going to function and it's going to change you at the core of your being. Tonight, are you surrendered to the Holy Spirit? Have you surrendered your life to God? Have you said, God, I want you to reign and rule upon the throne of my heart? This is what it means to have God's law upon your heart. You loathe the idea of disobeying him and disappointing him. And when there's an opportunity, you are happily educated in his ways so that you can walk with him in truth and in righteousness. You know, some of you have been here at every meeting. And I would like to think that you've been here at every meeting because you are happily educated in the ways of God, so that you can walk with him in righteousness and in truth. You want to know what God wants you to do. And there is a great delight when we are aware of what God wants to do, how he wants us to live, and we say, yes, Lord, I will walk in that. There's a great delight in that. And it's our best way, like we said earlier this week, it's our best way of loving God is to cooperate with him, do what he says, and live his way. It's the best way we can show we love God. Well, it goes on to say, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. This indicates a personal relationship with God. One in which we belong to him, and he belongs to us. God owns us, and in a sense, we own him. We are 
partners or we are in a relationship in this life that is deep and meaningful. They shall, I, shall, I will be to them a God, they shall be to me a people. Verse 11 says, and they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least to the greatest. Now what do you think about a relationship with God tonight? What do you think about that? We have some very young Christians here tonight. Maybe you've been a Christian only a few days, a few weeks, months, whatever. We have some people who have been walking with the Lord for decades. We can't quite make it to centuries, okay? But we can, we can talk about decades of walking with God, okay? And uh, you've even got some people here that have official positions in the church. And so sometimes young, inexperienced people look at others and they say, yeah, they've got a great relationship with God, but I'm young. I don't really know what that's all about. God says that there is a possibility of every Christian being in a close and meaningful walk with God. Okay? It isn't just for the super Christians. It's not just for the pastor, the deacons, and the bishops. It's not just for the missionaries and the evangelists. But it is for every Christian. He says here, People aren't going to have to say, know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least to the greatest. And so if you think somehow that leaves you out, that leaves nobody out. Nobody is left out of knowing the Lord. If you are a Christian, no matter where you're at in your walk with God, you can know him. It is for you. You can know God. You can walk with God. You can be more like God. You can be effective for God. You can grow to be a great man or woman for God. It is for every Christian. And I often wonder, do you ever wonder why it seems like some people never really get there? Maybe they don't try. Maybe they don't care. Maybe they don't seek the Lord as they should. But you know, it is for every Christian. In fact, how many of you would agree with me that, that God has, or Jesus has, one program for all his followers? It's called, it's called denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following. That's for everybody. I don't know why there's other denominations where it doesn't seem like they teach that or something. And people, is, you know, they go to church on Sunday, and then the rest of their life they live the way they please. They watch the programs they want to watch on TV. They go to all the entertainment they want to go to, and they, they um, you know, talk the way they want to talk, they live the way they want to live, and they don't really give much concern for what God might say about their daily living. But I believe Jesus meant that if you're going to walk with him, it's going to be a daily thing. You're going to, you're going to live for him every day. It's not just one day a week. And so it's for everyone. He has one program for everyone. Our brother just talked about the one-size-fits-all gospel. And so it is for everyone. Verse 12 says, this is our Hebrews passage, it says, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. Do you need that tonight? Do you need God to be merciful to your unrighteousness? I need that. I need that. You need that. He says, in their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. We can, we can just be so grateful tonight that God is great in mercy. 
God is great in mercy. Our mercy runs out. We're not very merciful. If I'm on the phone with somebody too long, and, they, and we're not getting anywhere, like happens to me sometimes, I, I run out of mercy. I, say, I, I, can't, I, don't feel like I, I can't go any longer. I can't put up with this anymore. I think it's time to quit. It's time to give up. Um, but God, he he's always has mercy. He's got plenty of mercy. He's abundant in mercy. He loves to be merciful. Now, who does he love to be merciful to? What kind of people does he love to be merciful to? You think he's merciful on the stubborn, arrogant, proud? Well, we know that God, what does God do with the pride, the proud? Tell me. God, what the proud? Resist the proud, okay. How many of you would be comfortable knowing that God is always resisting you? Would you like that? God is against me every day because I am a proud and arrogant person. How would that feel? I wouldn't want that at all. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Oh, just be a humble person. Just humble your heart before God. You know, he, uh, pride, I want to tell you something about pride. Something you already know. <laughs> pride is a lie about yourself. Pride is a lie about yourself. There's no truth in pride. It is an inflated opinion of yourself. It's, making, it's, it's telling yourself that you're better than you are, more important than you are, and even maybe more important than someone else or better than someone else. Forget it. Forget it. Because you are no better than anyone else. There are people, maybe you say, well, look at the bad choices they've made. Look where they ended up and whatnot. But you know what? If it wasn't for the grace of God, that'd be you. So just be humble. Just thank God that he's been merciful to you. All right? So when you fail, there's two ways to fail. All right? This is, I know this is elementary, didn't I? I'm sorry. You're, I'm insulting your intelligence. There's two ways to fail. You can fail with excuses and reasons and justifications. And if you fail that way, you will receive no mercy. You can stick up for yourself, act like you're right, even when you know down inside you are wrong. No mercy for that. There is no mercy for, a, for an excuse. There is no mercy for rationalization. But, on the other hand, you can fail humbly. And when you fail with humility, you do the wrong thing, you say the wrong thing, you think the wrong thing, you have the wrong attitude, whatever it might be, and you do it with humility, there's mercy. Okay? If I can slip away and say, God, my attitude is bad. Any of you ever do that? Have you ever gone, <laughs> gone away to a secret spot and say, God, I got a bad attitude. I don't want to have a bad attitude. Maybe you never have a bad attitude. And you're saying, does the preacher sometimes have a bad attitude? Yeah, sometimes a preacher has a bad attitude. I have to get away. Say, God, I got a bad attitude. I'm sorry. 
please, please, before something bad happens, please give me a better attitude. I can walk out a new man because God is merciful and he gives me a better attitude. <laughs> I can put on a smile and be a nice person because God helps me to have a good attitude. So when you fail, I'm not going to say if you fail, I'm going to say when you fail, fail with humility. Say, you know what? I failed, and I'm sorry. I was wrong. And I'm humble enough to admit it, and God's mercy meets my failure when I'm humble. God loves to show mercy to the humble, honest and confessing soul. And it says here that God keeps no record of your wrongs. Now, I, you know, you and I aren't like that. We have this, we have this, this, this writing device somewhere up in our head. I don't know where it is, but there's a writing device there that when things are written down, it, it doesn't go anywhere. It just stays there. I mean, I can be ever so forgiving towards the people who have done me wrong, which I have been. I've been very forgiving towards people. And, but, but I still remember what they did. Too bad. I wish, I wish we had a, you know, a, you know, you can, there's ways to delete things, all right? We can delete. And sometimes you delete things and they're still kind of there and you can find them again and bring them back. Uh, but sometimes you actually can actually delete it and it is totally gone. You're like, oh, I, I lost it and I'll never get it back. Don't you wish you could do that in your mind sometimes? It's so nice if we could just have a delete button that really totally erases it, and it doesn't come back again. But we have a good memory. Okay? We can remember what people said. And we can remember what people did. We can't really forget it, even if we have thoroughly forgiven it, and we still and we just love that person, and we have a good relationship with them. But we remember the things they said and did. But surely we're not going to bring it up to anybody's hurt, right? We're going to hurt anybody with it. We just know it's there. I guess we'll carry that the rest of our lives, but... God says, I forget. God is divinely capable of doing something you and I really can't do. He forgets. And he is, he's God, and there's nothing he can't do. And so if he wants to forget something, he can. Their sins I will remember no more. The New Covenant emphasizes grace. God's gift of salvation through his only begotten and blessed son, Jesus Christ. And in the new covenant, it is not bought, it is not earned, but it is received by faith. Much more could be said about the new covenant tonight, but we will move on to number four. When Jesus said it is finished, he was saying prophecies are fulfilled. Depending on the source, there were between 28 and 33 prophecies fulfilled just in the day of Christ's crucifixion. 28 to 33. Now, probably debatable which are referring to that or which are not. But the chance, I mean, there, with God, there is no such thing as chance, all right? I'm sorry to use the word chance. But the chance of one man fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies concerning the coming Messiah lead to virtual impossibility. It is an impossibility that one person 
would fulfill all these prophecies except for the fact that God's hand was very, very directly involved. Okay? It is totally divine. In fact, I know a man. I know a man who was sort of an agnostic. Somehow he got his hands on a tract. And the tract was prophecies of the Old Testament fulfilled in Jesus. Okay? So it's pretty simple, very simple. But it was, here's a prophecy in the Old Testament. And here is the New Testament scripture where it's fulfilled. So he did all these. He looked at these comparisons. He said, this is, this is remarkable. This is impossible. This could not be except for the fact that God's hand is in this. It is absolutely divine. The man became a Christian, gave his heart to the Lord because of the virtual impossibility of that happening any other way except through the power of God. And so we can look into the prophecies of the Old Testament concerning Jesus, all of which were written several hundred years before Jesus came on the scene. And it is the divine fingerprint of God proving the authenticity and identity of the Lord Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah. And so prophecies are fulfilled. You can look that up and find it. But there is all kinds of amazing things that come to light when we compare the Old Testament prophecies with how they were fulfilled in the New Testament. Point number five tonight. <clears throat> Redemption is complete. I invite you to Hebrews chapter one. Jesus said, it is finished. And that meant that redemption is complete. Actually, several scriptures here from Hebrews, but Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, say this. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews 10, 9 to 14. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God, who taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. By the, which went, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ, please notice this, once for all. And every priest standeth daily, ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice, please note, one sacrifice for sins, please note, forever sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. All right. So, um, when, just to highlight a little bit in there, the work of Jesus Christ, the work of Jesus Christ in redemption of mankind when the work was done, what did he do? 
we do? He sat down. Okay, good, thank you. He sat down. At the end of the day, some of you have a comfy chair. I know that. I, saw, I, sat, in, I sat in what I think might be the most comfortable chair I ever sat in my life last evening. Okay, I'll try not to point out who has this chair. <laughs> Very comfortable chair, okay? Um, I don't have one like that at my house, so I might be thinking about something like that in my future. But, you know, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, when the work is done, uh, some people work very hard during the day. Some people, uh, you know, some people think school teachers have a really easy job. I'll tell you what, there is nothing more exhausting than being a school teacher. I remember days coming home from the classroom when I was a school teacher, and the only thing you want to do is just, oh boy, done, done, nothing left. <laughs> Uh, some of you have very hard manual labor you do. And when you come home in the evening, it's like, where's the chair? Where's the chair? Sit in that chair and get me, get me my coffee. Bring me my newspaper. Give me what, what I want. Give me what I need, whatever. But you know what? You're done. You are done. The work is done for the day. But you know what? You're going to wake up tomorrow morning. You're going to have to do it all over again. <laughs> okay. But Jesus is different. Jesus when he completed the work of redemption, he sat down. Has he gotten up a bunch of times since then? I don't know. I don't know. It does say when Stephen was being stoned that he saw Jesus standing, looking down. Okay, I see the Son of Man, the Son of God standing. Okay, so maybe that was an occasion where he stood. Maybe every time one of his children is being martyred, maybe Jesus stands and looks. I don't know. He might. But the work was done. The work was done. And so what are we doing here tonight? What are we doing? Are we wrestling? Working? Trying? Or are we resting? What do you do? What do you do? I met a man. He was in my driveway. Okay, this man came in my driveway with a digger machine. Now, I think there's some excavating kind of people here. I'm not sure. But this man came in with a machine on a trailer. He got out of his truck. He got the machine off. He started using the machine. At some point, I had a conversation with him. I said to him, and I'm an awkward person. I'm sorry. Okay? But I said to this young man, I said, when you came in my driveway, I identified you as a child of God. That's what I said. Something very similar to that anyway. And you're all saying, yeah, you are awkward. Is that okay to have that kind of conversation? And the guy said, the young man said to me, well, I'm trying. Okay, now what do you think about that? I identified you as a child of God. He said, well, I'm trying. Do you try? Do you just try to be a Christian? Is it a matter of trying? Uh, we trying to kind of, Somehow we're trying to, to, to win our way. Are we, are we somehow trying to buy our way? Are we somehow going to earn our way? Tell you what, you can't, you can't buy, you can't spend enough. You don't have what it takes. You, you are, you like, okay, let's say it costs a million dollars to be a Christian. You will never in all your life have more than a couple pennies. There's no way. Uh, you think about the value, the value of salvation. A brother talked about the treasure. 
the treasure of salvation, the pearl of great price. And salvation is something that is of such enormous, it is actually of eternal value. What makes any man, woman, child, any person in this world think that somehow I can earn something that has no end of its value? There's no way. There is no way. It is received by faith. God wants people to know and love his son, Jesus, and put their faith and trust in him. And so when I think about salvation tonight, it is a great sigh of relief that I don't have to try to earn it. There's no way I could. But I rest in what Jesus has done. Jesus did it. We sing a song sometimes, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Yes, we owe him everything. But what we are giving him is not in any way to buy what he's given, what he's done for us. We do it because we love him. We do it because we're grateful. We do it because we've been transformed and changed. Not because we're trying to get there by some effort of our own. Tonight, if you're trying to work your way to heaven, I just, <laughs> I'm sorry, but you're never going to work hard enough. You can't work hard enough. We rest in the finished, finished work of Jesus. I have no other plea. There is no other plea except that Jesus died for me. I have no other plea of mine. It's all what he has done. And so tonight, I want to tell you that in Jesus, redemption is complete. We rest in the work that he did, and then we serve him out of love and appreciation for what he's done. Okay? Can we get it straight? Can we get the, the horse before the cart? Because a lot of people have the cart out in front, and the horse is trying to push it along. Kind of a frustrating situation. But we rest in what Jesus has done. And when we fail, John says, these, uh, he says, little children, these things I write unto you that you sin not. In other words, that's God's intention for us. God's intention for us is that we sin not, but if we sin or when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And so he's there for when we fail. And when we fall, and we know 1 John 1, 9, some people's favorite verse, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And God does what he says. He forgives when we confess. All right, redemption is complete. The last point tonight is number six. And to me, this is one of the most exciting things I can tell you. <laughs> It's about the most exciting thing I can tell you this whole week. And that is that Satan is defeated. Jesus said it's finished. That was a death blow. Absolutely a death blow to Satan. He's defeated. Does it look like he's defeated? As you look around you in the world, do you see Satan being defeated? No, I don't see that. I see Satan's in charge. I see him destroying people. I see him damaging society. I see people that are ruined by the power of Satan. But I tell you what, Satan's defeated in the life of God's child. Listen to this. This is 1 John 
3, 5 to 9. It says, and this is 1 John 3, 5. And ye know that he was manifested or came on the scene to take away our sins. And in him, Jesus, is no sin. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not, meaning that they do not live habitually in sin. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. Now please listen to this. Please look at it. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, meaning that he does not habitually live in sin. For his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. And so the purpose of Jesus' coming was to destroy the works of the devil. Did he do that? Did he, did he pass or fail? Did he do it or didn't he? Well, of course he did. Of course he did it. He did what he came to do. He destroyed the works of the devil. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 say this, For as much then as children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Destroyed him that had the power of death, that is the devil. So I ask you tonight, brothers and sisters, is that a reality in your life? Have the works of the devil been destroyed in your life? You might say, well, not totally. Well, did, is it at least partial? Is it at least some? You should be able to say, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can testify tonight that the works of the devil have been destroyed in my life. I am not under his control or his bondage. Jesus has delivered me from the power of Satan. And he has delivered you from the power of Satan. You can live in victory. You don't have to be under Satan's dominion or control. Because Jesus is stronger than the devil. And when he's in charge, the devil has to go. And so if the devil is very active and busy and real in your life, maybe you need to surrender more of your heart and life to Jesus. Let him be in control. Let him be in charge. And when Jesus is in charge, the devil has to go. And so Jesus defeated the devil. So in Jesus Christ tonight, the devil's works are destroyed. His rule and reign and dominion is diminished in Jesus. His power is overcome in Jesus. And Satan's captives are released in Jesus. When Jesus said it is finished, it means the battle has been won and that Jesus is victor. And you and I share his victory. When Jesus said it is finished, three little tiny words. Well, one's long, but he said an awful lot.
And we rest in his finished work. And we rejoice in what he's done. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. Well, that is the end of the message tonight. It has been a joy to be with you. I trust you will go home inspired. Maybe the Lord has spoken to you tonight. I don't think we're going to necessarily have an invitation. But if you're here tonight and the Lord has spoken to you and maybe, you know, like our brother said earlier, the Lord can speak by his spirit, even things a preacher doesn't talk about. So if the Lord has spoken to you something tonight and you need to make something right with God, do that before you go to bed. If you need to talk to somebody, there's a lot of really nice people here. Be glad to talk to you about your need, whatever that need may be. If you need Jesus as your Savior tonight, if you're not saved, if you don't know the Lord, please get along with somebody and say, I need to know what it means to be a Christian. Please help me. Okay? So don't leave tonight the same way you came if the Lord has touched your heart. Well, uh, do you want me to turn it back to you, brother? Okay. All right. We'll just let you do that. I'll go sit down and you can finish.